All right, good morning. Let's get right into our study this morning. Studies in the life of David. We're in the book of 2 Samuel. Our text is chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. So uh, if you'd like to follow along, uh, you can uh, open your Bible there or you can uh, follow along on your iPhone or your iPad if you uh, so choose. Here at Calvary, we tell you to put your phones on silent. Uh, you know, some places tell you to turn your phones off. Keep them on, just put them on silent. Uh, and uh, you can follow along if you have an iPhone. Uh, you can be following along with the study this morning. Our topic we'll find is this. The Jebusites and King David trade taunts and insults as the Israelites determine they're going to conquer Jerusalem. The title of our message, if you're going to walk the walk, you've got to trash the talk. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning. We're here to gain insight for the living of our Christian life. And really, Lord, what that translates into is that we want to see you on the pages of Scripture. We want you to reveal your grace and your mercy and your love, the joy, Lord, of our salvation. Lord, we want to see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word and then go away looking more like you, having been conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place, Lord, to take the Word and make it powerful and alive in each and every heart. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, they've never really given their heart to You, they haven't acknowledged that they're a sinner in need of salvation, that You would be drawing them to the cross right now, Lord, as we speak. We pray for the little ones and the older uh, kids, Lord, over in the Sunday school, that they would hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ today that they would know that they're sinners in need of a Savior and that some, many, Lord, would give their hearts to You and that for a lot of the kids, Lord, their earliest possible memory would be that they walked with You and knew You and that You were their Lord and Savior. We praise You and thank You for that. Focus our attention, Lord, on uh, what's to come in Your Word this morning. May it yield treasure uh, and insight, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. In sports, it's called trash talk. One of the greatest trash talking moments occurred in the 1997 NBA Finals between the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz. The game was tied at 82. It was game one. It was being played on a Sunday. As Carl Malone stepped to the free throw line, Scottie Pippen walked behind the mailman, which was his nickname, and he muttered, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday. Apparently it had some effect because he choked by throwing up two bricks. On the ensuing play, one of basketball's great trash talkers, Michael Jordan, won the game with a buzzer beater. We encounter some trash talk in our text. That's really what it is. David was now king of a united nation of Israel. His first order of business was to capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites. When David's men approached Jerusalem, it prompted some high-level trash-talking from both sides. The Jebusites, confident that they were in an impregnable city, looked down upon the Israelites and said, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall repel you. In other words, we don't even need to send our army. Blind and lame people could keep you out. David turned their taunt back on them, and then after Jerusalem was taken by his army, we'll see that it became a motivational saying in Israel. Conquering Jerusalem was both a strategic and a symbolic victory 
for David. You see, in their entire history, the Jews had never been able to overcome the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They'd never driven them out. It was as if even lame and blind Jebusites could repel the best soldiers of Israel. What you see in this text is that the moment Israel recognized their rightful king, the conquest that had eluded them for so long became easy. I'm going to suggest a correlation in our spiritual lives as believers in Jesus Christ. It's simply this. In our lives, there are things we struggle against that are essentially powerless because of the cross of Jesus, yet they continue to hold sway over us. If we will yield to the Lordship of Christ, we can and we will overcome those strongholds. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the lame and the blind will repel you until you settle the issue of lordship. And number two, the lame and the blind will repulse you once you settle the issue of lordship. Let's take a look at them repelling you uh, and get started in verses one through seven. Now, I need to spend a few moments defining what we mean by lordship, and that's because a few years ago there was a big debate among evangelical Christians over what was called lordship salvation. Its proponents emphasized that submitting to Christ as Lord over your life goes hand in hand with trusting in Christ to be saved. You could summarize their position, and they did, by this saying, if he's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. And so it was a a position that you needed to be able to look at your life and say, Jesus is Lord of every area of my life right now, uh, or maybe I'm not really a Christian. Uh, And there were solid evangelicals who hold to that to this day. There's others who think that that's a little bit extreme. They point out, that, of course, Jesus is Lord, but spiritual growth is something different than salvation. The Bible calls this process sanctification. Some people grow more quickly than others, and even in our individual lives, there can be circumstances and situations that affect our sanctification. Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus is an issue of sanctification, not of salvation. To quote one source, A person does not have to submit to God in every area of his or her life in order to be saved. A person simply has to recognize that he or she is a sinner in need of Jesus Christ for salvation and place trust in Him. Jesus is Lord. Christians absolutely should submit to Him, but a changed life and submission to Christ's Lordship are the result of salvation, not a requirement for salvation. And so it's, it's maybe, uh, sometimes I think it's more complicated than that, but it's really pretty simple. On the one hand, you have people saying, well, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, you're probably not a Christian. And then good guys like Charles Ryrie, for example, who's a great theologian, we love his stuff, he wrote a book and he said, okay, so uh, really, can you honestly say that there's no sin in your life, that there's no area in your life that you have yet yielded to Jesus Christ, that you are in a sense, almost perfect? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, And so his position is salvation is a matter of the lordship of Christ, and then we grow in the Lord. And this is what we all know to be true. I mean, everybody that's a Christian knows that every day it's a little bit of a struggle 
uh, to uh, continue to grow and to get free of certain things. And so for our purposes this morning, in talking about the lordship of Jesus, we mean a Christian resolving issues of spiritual growth, deciding who is really in control of various areas of our lives, uh, your life. As soon as Israel recognized David was king, something that had eluded them for centuries, the capture of the stronghold of Jerusalem was simply and instantly achieved. And so verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, after the death of Saul, the men of Judah recognized David as king. The northern tribes did not. David ruled the south from Hebron while a descendant of Saul's, Ishbosheth, ruled the north. This went on for some seven years until the murder of Ishbosheth by two of his own military captains. Now Israel is coming together as a united nation under the leadership of David. The thing to notice is that the northerners knew all along David was God's choice to be king. Even while Saul was alive, it was David whose early military exploits brought glory to God and defended Israel. Still, they followed Saul and then afterward his son. They were willfully refusing to acknowledge what they knew and believed to be true, that David was their king and God intended to shepherd them through David. Now, we want to relate to this on a personal level. If we are Christians, we know and believe that Jesus is Lord and that he means to shepherd us. But in one or more areas of our lives, we may cling to some other ruler. It might be self. It might be some idol that we have set up. We may struggle against it or we may grow comfortable with it. It might be a habit we've chosen or an addiction that holds us in chains. We may find ourselves making the excuse, that's just the way I am. And so there's a lot of different ways that this can express itself, where the idea is that, you know, I, I know and believe that Jesus is Lord of all. But there's a couple of areas of my life that I either enjoy or I'm struggling with, or there's something about it where I just am not really ready to acknowledge that. The encouragement of God's word for us today is that overcoming that kind of stronghold in our lives, no matter how fiercely held or for how long, it's possible if we will yield to the lordship of Jesus Christ in that area. Now, the elders of Israel representing the people, they anointed David king. God had already anointed him some 15 or more years earlier when he was still a teenager. They were just getting around to fully acknowledging what God had already done for them. You can tend to think of this as for David, you know, as God is raising up David to be king. But as you realize it, you step back, God is raising up David to be the shepherd king over his people. God brought David to Israel for Israel's sake so that he could serve them as their king. Uh, and so they were the ones that were holding this blessing off. 
So much of our growing in Christ is fully acknowledging what He has already done for us. On the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. He conquered death and hell. We're told that as we identify with His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, that we are dead to sin and alive to Him. Meaning we have power to not sin and to walk in victory over it. When Paul the Apostle explains this in the book of Romans about chapter 6, he uses the word reckon. He says, this is what Jesus has done. You just need to reckon or realize that that is what he's done and then walk in the truth of it. Uh, And so he looks at Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. You died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. You rose from the dead. Jesus lives in resurrection power. You have resurrection power. And so much of growing in the Christian life uh, is realizing what God has already done. We always want to figure out what we're supposed to be doing. And and this uh, tends towards legalism. It tends towards religion. You have to understand that as, as human beings, we like religion. And even as Christians, we want to bring a little religion in. We want to bring a little legalism in. We want to have one thing or five things or 12 things or 15 things that we have to do in order to really have victory. And then you come to these passages like this. This is the illustration of what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, no, as soon as you realize this about your relationship with God, you've got victory. And then you walk in it. As soon as the Israelites acknowledged what they already knew to be true, David, you're our king, and God has made you our king, Israel had Jerusalem just like that. Uh, And so it's a very interesting illustration. Some areas of our lives prove more resistant to this acknowledging than others. Or we might make the foolish mistake of returning to a stronghold that Jesus overcame for us. Either way, the solution is the same. Acknowledge that he is Lord and yield to him. Now, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. In this historical note, we see that the northern tribes suffered under the wrong lordship for at least seven years. Stubborn to hold out against David, it created a stalemate in which their growth was on hold. And it affected the development of the entire nation as they remained separated and unable to overcome the Jebusites to take their rightful capital city. Their lives went on, they got up, they went to work, they went to worship, but there was something missing. Someone, actually. They did not have their shepherd king to lead them to new glories and to victory. The Christian life can be sort of stunted as well if we allow strongholds to continue. We'll go through the motions, uh, we'll get up, we'll do our normal thing, we'll even do Christian things, but we're not really making any progress because there's some issues that need to be dealt with. Verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here. The blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. As far as they were concerned, David was another guy in a long line of potential conquerors who had never been able to gain that stronghold. Jerusalem, because of the way it was situated up on a hill and all, and fortified, It was one of those seemingly impregnable fortresses. In the Bible, 
you've got some of those uh, in literature and in history. There's, you know, they, they build this thing and they think, wow, there's no way in. And army after army uh, gets wiped out. And then somebody comes along and says, huh, I have an idea. How about we shut off the water supply and go in under the wall? Well, that sounds good. And then while all these people in Babylon are drunk, we'll kill them all. It's kind of a Trojan horse kind of a thing. You know, there's always a way to get into an impregnable fortress. But these guys were confident, so confident that they said, you can come against us all you want. We're not even going to send soldiers out. We're just going to send blind, lame people to fight you. That's how strong our fortification is. In a sense... You might also say that the blind and the lame had repelled the Israelites until now. Commentators and historians point out that in addition to referring to actual blind and lame individuals, this could be a reference to the gods of the Jebusites. It was not uncommon in ancient warfare when an army came against you for you to bring out your idols and your gods and to position them. And basically you were saying our gods are stronger than your god or gods. It was common practice in those days. Now, if you're a Jebusite, you knew that the God of Israel had attitude about idols. Psalm 135 says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. And so God is on record as saying, uh, blind, idols are blind and lame. They have no power. And part of the taunt of the Jebusites is, well, here's our blind and lame gods, but your God hasn't been able to defeat them, has he? I mean, this is serious trash talk. The trash talk is, you know, it's, it's an art. Uh, today it's all just swearing and talking about your mother and stuff like that. But, I mean, you know, Scotty Pippen going up behind Carl Malone saying, hey, there's no, no mail gets delivered on Sunday. He's like, whoa, what am I going to do? I'm spun out. I need a new nickname because yeah, I play too many games on Sunday. Who gave me this stupid nickname? The mailman delivers. Yeah, not on Saturday and Sunday and your rates are going up again. But anyway, you know, some nicknames are not that good. And so, you know, this is high-level trash. So they're saying, David, we could defend the city with blind and lame people. That's how strong we are. And uh, our blind and lame gods, they're uh, pretty good against your living God. So what are you going to do about that? Well, uh, David says, verse 7, I took the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. That's it. We'll see how in a minute. But it's like after all of this taunting and all of this buildup and all of these centuries, it just says, nevertheless, he took the stronghold of Zion. The point the writer seems to be making is that victory was certain and even easy once they acknowledged the rightful king. The thing that had always eluded them was that they didn't have the rightful king. Now was the time that God was going to give them that victory because David was king. Is there an area in your life you continually struggle against? It may be a sincere struggle or it may be something you desire actually to hold on to. Either way, the Lord has already overcome it Victory may be as easy as acknowledging it is, in fact, an enemy stronghold that needs to be overthrown. Now, in verses 8 through 15, we're going to see that the lame and the blind repulse you once you settle this issue of lordship. David engaged in some trash talking of his own to motivate his men. In verse 8, now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft 
and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now before we look at his strategy, notice the phrase, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Who or what was David referring to? Well, certainly he was referring to the so-called gods of the Jebusites. And by extension, he was referring to the Jebusites themselves who had put their trust in dead idols of their own making instead of turning to the living God who had made them. Then we read, therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. This apparently became a saying in Israel, something soldiers would say to one another as motivation before a battle. They'd come upon a fortified enemy and they'd look at one another and say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And it would remind them of their great victory in Jerusalem when the enemy said this to them. Oh, you remember when the enemy said the blind and the lame can defend and, you know, and all that? And then we took that house. And so uh, it would remind them that the gods of the pagans were blind and lame and no match at all for the living God. Now, we're told that David hated the blind and the lame. We're told that he was repulsed by them. It's been my experience over the years that once Jesus has taken over an area of my life, the thing or the things I used to be drawn to are shown to be repulsive. I see the damage they can create, the ruin that they instigate. They're just plain ugly when compared to the beauty of Christ. I mean, those of you who are saved later in life and who have kind of a... Uh, a sordid testimony, you, you know, you did a lot of carnal, weird things. You look back at your life and you think, man, I, I can't believe I ever enjoyed that or thought that that was fun. That's ugly. That's ruin. That's destruction. It's terrible, the things that I was involved with. I, I don't, what was I thinking? And that's the idea here is that you have to be repulsed at the things that uh, repulse the Lord. Now, Jerusalem uh, seemed secure in her defenses. David identified one weakness. There was a water shaft that supplied the city its fresh water. The soldiers could enter there and attack and defeat the Jebusites. There's always a weak point, isn't there? Always a way in. Uh, and, and it might take decades or centuries for somebody to figure it out, but there's no such thing as an impregnable fortress. Not in the real world and not in our spiritual lives. If there's a stronghold of sin or selfishness in your life, the Lord can easily overcome it. Now, water is a common symbol in the Bible for the cleansing and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Everything we're talking about obviously depends upon the cleansing and the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot overcome strongholds on our own in our own strength. The words, he shall be chief and captain, David says, whoever does this and leads the army, basically, he's going to be my new captain. Uh, you notice in your Bible, they are in italics. Whenever you see words in italics in your Bible, your English Bible, it means the translators added them, they supplied them to give a better reading, a better sense. They're not adding to the Word of God. They're just letting you know, hey, these words aren't in the original manuscripts that we have, but this is the reading that you want. And in this case, these words are in the text of 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 6, which gives a parallel account. 
And there, not only do you read these words, but you see that Joab went up first and claimed the command of David's army. Now, I thought Joab was already David's commander. Well, you remember he was, but he had recently murdered Abner. He was kind of on the outs with David. And, you know, Abner was the commander of the northern troops. And so, you know, when you kill the commander of the northern troops, it doesn't really endear you to the northerners. And so David had a problem with Joab uh, because of what he had done. But Joab is a pretty amazing warrior. He's the kind of guy that you want on your side. Uh, he's, he's a guy that you want leading your army. And so David does something extremely brilliant and diplomatic. He surveys this whole situation and he says, okay, whoever leads the army uh, up the water shaft and in, that's my commander. Now, I think he kind of half knew that it would be Joab because he was that kind of guy and his men still respected him. But as Joab went in and won this victory, then everyone would respect him uh, and he would go on and be able to lead David's army. And, and so that's the situation. He's giving Joab this opportunity to prove himself and redeem himself. Now, the thing I get from this personally is that I can't rest in former victories or some current position or office. Uh, it, you know, stepping back, you think, well, you think, well, I thought Joab, I thought you were the commander. How come you're not leading this? David's interested in what you're going to do for me today. Not what you've done in the past. What is it you're going to do today? My Christian life is to be a daily overcoming of sin, of routing enemies uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that leads me to ignore or establish or reestablish enemy strongholds in my life is when I start thinking I've somehow arrived. I won't arrive until I awake in heaven and am in the presence of my Lord and Savior. Until then... I must strive in his power against those things that ought to repulse me. Now, the remaining verses of this section down to verse 16, they read like a footnote, but an important footnote. They give us a glimpse of life under the rightful king. Verse 9, then David dwelt in the stronghold and he called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. And so what we learn here is that although David conquered Jerusalem and it was an extremely fortified city, he fortified the already fortified city. If God has given you a victory, if you've overcome a stronghold in your life, then you need to seek to fortify that position constantly. New uh, bulwarks, new battlements, new walls, whatever it is, you can't ever really be confident that you've totally overcome an area as long as we are in these bodies of flesh. And so we need to pay some attention to what's going on. Because you know why? One reason why is because the devil is always coming up with new strategies. I mean, you, you overcame something 10 years ago with the help of the Lord, and in those ten years, the devil has been coming back at you with a whole new strategy, with a whole new battle plan to draw you away from the Lord. And so we need to constantly be refortifying. Then verse 10, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. 
Here we see that other nations began to recognize that God was doing something in Israel through David. In other words, his testimony increased. So does ours when we settle the issue of lordship because we are hearing from the Lord with greater confidence. For his part, David was encouraged in his walk and his work. It doesn't mean things were going to be totally smooth or that there were no discouragements in his kingdom. It means that he knew he was where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing, and then he was looking past people and circumstances and unto the Lord. Now, verse 13 through 16 are a little bit uh, dark. It says, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, and I will leave it to your imagination to read them. I got, I got through all of them except the last one, Eliphetelet or something like that, and, and I just couldn't do it. So anyway... Truth is, we're not too excited about these verses. God had instructed his kings in the book of Deuteronomy to not multiply wives to themselves. David totally ignored this from the very beginning of his adult life. This was an area that David absolutely ignored. It was customary in those days for a king to have many wives. A lot of them would be the daughters of foreign rulers and they helped to cement peace treaties and such. And so this was the common practice. You're a king. You prove uh, what kind of a strong king you are by how big a harem you have, how many wives you have. And when you're doing these treaties and these deals, they sweeten the pot by, you know, here, take my daughter from my third wife and she's now your wife. And, and so you had these things going on. And David fell right into this. By the way, first service, I was realizing that whether you're a, a slave or a king, uh, there's always pressure on you to be like the world. So I don't know if they had king conventions in those days, you know, where all the kings would get together in Las Vegas and have a convention or whatever. Uh, But if they did, you know, God intended for his king to come uh, and have one wife. And but imagine in the culture of that day, you know, you come and here's all these kings. Oh, yeah, there's King Hiram. And here's this. How many? I got 20 wives. I have 50 wives. I have a thousand wives. David, how many wives? Yeah, one. Man, what's the matter with you? What kind of a king are you? Kind of a wimpy king. You know, I mean, we, look at all the wives we have. You know, how do you do your treaties? If you, you know, when, in whatever walk of life you're in, if you're a Christian, there's a way for non-believers to look at you and think, wow, you're, you're nothing. You're nobody. Really, God, God restricts you to one wife? <laughs> what a loser. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think, man, if I was just king, well... We don't think that, but if I was just, you know, if I was the boss or if I had this power or if I had this position, then I wouldn't have to put up with this. And uh, the truth is it only gets worse. What you have here, as we look back at David, is an enemy stronghold under construction in David's life. And so David, I mean, David, we all love David. I mean, David, he's a a poet, he's a a shepherd, he's killing people. I mean, he's a warrior. You know, he's, he's the man after God's own heart. But as far as I can tell, for his entire adult life, he was building an enemy stronghold in his heart and kingdom by taking wife after wife after wife. And I'm sure he looked at that and thought, okay, Lord, I know what you said in Deuteronomy 
But, you know, the world's a little bit different now than it was back then. It's not just all these little feudal tribes and stuff. I mean, we're talking about big nations like Egypt and, and you know, all these. I have to be a little bit more like the world and stuff. And so, and, and he probably thought, you know, God, I'm never, you know, I'll just, I'll just have a bunch of wives and that'll be it. I mean, that'll be the one area of my life where we're not in agreement, but nothing will ever come of it. I'll be able to keep that under control. The problem was David took so many wives that one day it was nothing for him to take another man's wife when he took Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then it led to what? To the murder of that woman's husband. To the ordered murder. He ordered his soldiers to pull back from Uriah who is one of the great characters in the Bible. A really faithful guy. And so David, David said, I'm just going to build this one area of my... This is mine. Everything else belongs to God. This is mine. I know it's wrong, but it's not too wrong. And I won't ever go outside of certain boundaries. And God sometimes, this gives us some insight into the Lord. You know, sometimes the Lord says, yeah, I don't want you to do this. And you and I argue against it. You know, Lord, this isn't that bad. I mean, I know you say not to do it, but it's not that bad. God says, yeah, but I see this. You don't know what this is going to lead to. There, it, it leads to a breakdown in our communication. It leads to a breakdown in your heart and you end up doing what you said you would never do and it ruins your life. The lame and the blind are able to destroy your life once again. And so it kind of proves everything that we're talking about this morning right there in the life of David. God's Word is a mirror. We look into it to see ourselves as He sees us with the understanding that we want to look more like Jesus when we're done. If the Lord has revealed to you some area, any area in which you're being repelled by the blind and the lame, see them as they really are, become repulsed by them, and then walk in the power of the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.